but Sheehan observes the Japanese Zeros strafing, shooting at the men abandoning ship and the men in the water. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gun fighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connects him to other moments in his life during battle. The story of transformation is powerful. Teddy Sheehan is the 101st Australian to be awarded the Victoria Cross. He received the cross posthumously for his heroism during the sinking of HMAS Armadale on December 1st, 1942. 78 years later, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II approved the award on August 12th, 2020. Dr. Brendan Nelson, former Minister for Defence in the Howard Government and Director of the Australian War Memorial 2012-19, chaired the 2020 expert panel that reviewed Teddy's case. His panel's recommendation for Teddy to receive the VC was the last domino for this award finally being bestowed. We've worked with Dr. Nelson before. Angus Horden interviewed him in our five-part DVD documentary series for School and Country. And then in the service of our country, wearing the uniform of our nation under our flag, he gave his life for us. On this podcast, he appeared back in season one, 2017 when he spoke to me about his career, the Australian War Memorial, and the topic of Remembrance Day in Remembrance Day with Dr. Brendan Nelson. Nothing has ever made me prouder than to see these young men and women doing what they do in our uniform, under our flag, in our name, in these remote parts of the world. We brought him back on the show to tell us the story of Teddy Sheehan and exactly how his posthumous VC came about. Teddy's story is extraordinary in its own right, as is the story of how his VC took so long to be approved and what finally changed. This is Dr. Nelson's conversation with Angus Horden. I'm Angus Horden, and today we're very pleased to greet Dr. Brenda Nelson in his office in Boeing in Sydney. It's my pleasure to be able to speak to you again, Angus, and reacquaint myself with your considerable audience. Brendan, this August, Teddy Sheehan became the 101st Australian to receive the Victoria Cross, 78 years after his death. We're going to talk about how this extraordinary award came about. But first, Brendan, can you tell us about Teddy's heroic story? Well, and and it is an heroic story, and the story about how the Victoria Cross has been finally awarded to him is in itself another story. So here is a young man who is born in Tasmania at Barrington Tops. He is one of 16 children. His family moves to La Trobe, up in the northwest of Tassie, and then at a very young age, at the age of 17, a farm labourer, 
he joins the Royal Australian Navy. So he'd only been in the Navy a very short time. And then in 1942, the ship HMAS Armadale had been built and commissioned. And Teddy Sheehan had done his basic training. In fact, he was on HMAS Cuttable when the Japanese midget submarines were in Sydney Harbour in late May 1942. But fortunately for him, he wasn't physically on Cuttable the night of the attack and 21 ratings were killed in that attack. So he was then uh, subsequently deployed to HMAS Armadale and his job was to be the loader on the aft oilican of HMAS Armadale. And you've got to remember the context. After 1788, the most important year in this country's history is 1942. We had the fall of Singapore, the bombing of Darwin, the first of 64 attacks on the Australian mainland that year. As I said, Japanese midget submarines in Sydney Harbour. A seriously important battle of the Coral Sea and the strategic defeat of the Japanese, who were then routed at Midway the following month in June 1942. Ishuava, Kokoda, Milne Bay, Gona, Buna, San Ananda, the Guadalcanal. But for the Royal Australian Navy, those last three months of 1942 were critically important, particularly with what happened with HMAS Canberra and a, and a range of uh, Navy ships. So Armadale was bringing back troops from Timor, from Sparrow Force. It was a part of Operation Hamburger. And while Hamburger was a successful operation, it was not without its challenges and critics of the way that it was actually executed. In late November and then in early December, particularly the 1st of December 1942, Armadale is coming back from Batana in Timor. Sheehan is the youngest, most junior member of the ship's company. He was 18 years old, ordinary seaman Edward Teddy Sheehan, second class. He was, as I say, the loader on the aft oilican. And so with uh, 149 on board, the ship had brought back predominantly Dutch soldiers. It had several Australian soldiers on board. And then on the 1st of December, 1942, in the Timor Sea, a Japanese aircraft, a number of them attacked the ship, HMAS Armadale. There were nine Japanese Betty bombers, Mitsubishi G4Ms as they were, and three Japanese Zeros, the fighter planes, and a float plane. And they identified HMAS Armadale, the location that it was, at uh, just after three o'clock in the afternoon Darwin time, attacked the ship at uh, 15.40 hours Darwin time, and then six minutes later the ship had sunk. A torpedo and then a bomb successively had hit the ship, and the order had been given to abandon ship when the ship was listing 50 degrees to the port side, given by its commanding officer, Lieutenant Commander David Richards. And what actually happened was that, that we certainly now know, is that Sheehan obeys the order to abandon ship. He goes down to the port side of the ship, which is listing into the sea. And on the port side of the ship, he's assisting ordinary seaman Ted Pellet, Edward Pellet, to cut the ropes off the motorboat, which was on the side of the doomed ship. So having done so, Pellet then moves into the motorboat, but Sheehan observes the Japanese Zeros strafing, shooting at the men abandoning ship and the men in the water. So whilst Sheehan is seen as if he's moving to get into the motorboat, where he would have had certainly a reasonable prospect of survival, instead he turns unwounded from Pellet, 
He moves up toward the stern, the rear of the sinking ship. The ship by this stage had broken in half and the forward part was going down under the water. So the stern is rising up in the water. Sheehan then is wounded on the way to the aft oilican and then straps himself into the gun. And in order to get maximum elevation of the oilican, you needed to strap yourself into the gun physically in order to fire. The magazine had a maximum of 60 rounds in it, so it may have had fewer than that. And then Sheehan commences to fire at the attacking aircraft. He is wounded again during this process the Royal Australian Navy official report and the report from his commanding officer and others said that he shot down one plane and they think damaged a second. And then whether Sheehan died at the gun or drowned as he was drawn, pulled under the sea to his death is unclear. So that is essentially what Sheehan did on the day. And then the events that followed that, of course, contribute to what some would regard as the controversy around the Victoria Cross. I'd like to note that Brendan's commentary just then was said straight to me without reference to notes. Unlike me, who is now reading a note that wireman William Lambshed stated afterwards, a torpedo struck our port side midships, causing a huge wall of water. The doorway burst open and I stepped into it, which took me over the side. I was a man overboard with a ringside position to witness the sinking the rear section was leaning on an angle to port when the after oilican started firing. I saw tracer bullets hitting a zero which flew over my head and hit the water some distance away. I learned later it was Teddy Sheehan who strapped himself into the gun and shot down the zero. To me this had to be one of the bravest things that could be recorded. Teddy Sheehan will always be a hero to me, said wireman William Lambshed. And I think, Brendan, having served in the Navy myself, I've asked the question to many veterans, you know, why weren't VCs awarded? And the simple truth of the matter is that recommendations of VCs in World War II for naval personnel, men serving on His Majesty's Australian ships, had to be approved by the British Admiralty. And they just didn't come out. Yes, and that's certainly the case. And uh, so, if you like, to complete uh, the story, so, so that is what happened on the day and there are some now refinements to our understanding of those facts as a consequence of what uh, the expert panel which I chaired uh, has undertaken. Lambshed, as you described uh, quite correctly, uh, was on the stern of the ship. He actually thought, because the ship was continuing to move forward, and at one stage Lambshed felt that he was going to be left out there in the ocean completely on his own. The ship then having sunk, Lambshed surveying the water, basically see only a handful of people. And he thought that he basically was going to be the only person left. And he swam toward the motorboat, which had been released by Pellet, assisted by Sheehan. He climbed into the motorboat and there was damage done to the motorboat. He pulled the bullet riddled wooden cover off the engine and then threw it into the water and then tried to start the engine and he was able to start it. And he describes the boat moving through the water and heads starting to pop up from under the water because understandably the men had dived deep down to avoid the shooting upon them from the Japanese zeros. And, and, and it was somewhat humorous in a sense because he found the commanding officer, David Richards, and Richards comes into the boat and then the first thing that Richards does is admonishes him, tears strips off him for the unauthorised 
last use of the use of the boat because he was a, a signalman and it was only the engineers that were supposed to start the engine. So, and in fact, Lambshed, as you've obviously read that Lambshed's report, Lambshed then says, well, actually, it was a good thing because it brought me back to reality. So what happens then is we know that there were 149 on the ship. In the end, only 49 survived. We believe that somewhere between 10 and 20 were killed and died during the process of the sinking and that immediate period in the water. So the decision was made by Richards, quite rightly in my opinion, to then take a group of the men, survivors, uh, 22 in total, in the motorboat and head towards Darwin. And then they left a raft and also a float uh, boat behind uh, with the other survivors. And there was an agreement amongst the men that this was the sensible thing to do. So Richards and uh, those that are surviving, they're picked up by HMAS Kalgoorlie, I think, from memory. And so the sinking occurs on the 1st of December. So then on the 6th of December, Richards and the survivors arrive back in Darwin. And one of the survivors, Ray Leonard, uh, the only survivor, by the way, at, certainly at the time of us doing our expert review on this, said to me he had abandoned ship on the starboard side. And so he'd swum, he said, about 40 yards away from the ship. And then the ship had gone down and he said as the ship was going down, he could hear one of the oilicans firing. And he knew from his position it was the after oilican. He didn't know who it was. But he said after the sinking, he swam across to survivors who were popping up from under the water, as described uh, as a by Lambshed. The first thing that a man called Russell Caro said to him, and whom Leonard described as a man of great integrity, the very first thing that Caro said to him in the water, did you see what Teddy did? Describing the actions of Teddy Sheen. Richards gets back to Darwin late on the 6th of December. So the following day, on the 7th of December, he writes his report of proceedings. Richards has lost his ship, he's lost an indeterminate number of men, he's got back to Darwin, he writes his report of proceedings. So everything that happened from the 30th of November through to and including the 1st of December. And so in that environment, before all of the survivors, including witnesses, of course, to Sheehan's actions, have actually got back and been found, Richards is writing his report of proceedings. And in relation to Sheehan, and he quite rightly recommended a second man, Lieutenant Whitting, who was extraordinarily brave, helping the men over the side of the sinking ship. But in relation to Sheehan, he said this, Ordinary seaman Edward Sheehan, although wounded, remained at his post at the aft oilican and was responsible for shooting down one aircraft and possibly damaging another until he was killed. That is what he said. That statement is actually inaccurate and it's incomplete. Sheehan's post was not to be the gunner on the oilican. Sheehan had not remained at his post. He'd actually left the post, he'd gone to the port side of the ship, he'd made a conscious decision to disobey that order and go back to the gun. He also misspelled his name, I might add, but that's a, a trivial matter. So it was incomplete and it was inaccurate, but Richard should not be blamed for that. A board of inquiry is held the following day, the 8th of December. None of the lower ranks have been consulted, none of the lower ranks have input into it, the three officers chosen by Commodore Pope, who was the senior naval officer in charge there in Darwin, were all subordinates to him. The Board of Inquiry is conducted in that single day, and Richard's report of proceeding was not considered as a part of it, but Richard spoke to it. So the Australian Commonwealth Naval Board, which is basically the Navy headquarters in that part of Australia, unlike every other Royal Australian Navy headquarters, if you like, based throughout the world, instead of using Royal Navy Form 57, 
which actually required a very detailed description of any recommendations for gallantry awards. They didn't use that. What they simply did was pass on without any advocacy whatsoever or further examination of both Sheehan's and Whitting's bravery, pass it on to the Lords of the Admiralty. And then in June the following year, in 1943, the Lords of the Admiralty recommended, in fact approved, a mention in dispatches for Teddy Sheehan. Sheehan, having been killed, was only eligible for two awards, a Victoria Cross or a mention in dispatches and he was awarded mention in dispatches. The other thing I might add, which the ACNB, the Australian Commonwealth Naval Board, did not do, it did not comply with its own regulations. And there was a regulation, CNO, Commonwealth Naval Order, 43 forward slash 42, which actually required a very detailed description of any actions to be made, of inquiries to be undertaken, of witnesses and so on. That had not been done. They didn't comply with their own orders. Sheehan was uh, gazetted, uh, finally gazetted with his correct name in July 1943. Now, mentioned in dispatches is itself a significant award for bravery. No one should trivialise the receiving and awarding of an MID. There were only nine naval personnel in the second Royal Australian Navy personnel that were so awarded, of which Sheehan was one. And I have read the citations for all of the other eight. All of them extraordinarily brave, but there was something about, in fact, there is without any doubt, obviously in my mind, an exceptional level of conspicuous bravery and gallantry in what Sheehan did compared to the other eight who were nonetheless uh, very brave. That is basically what happened at the time. And so Sheehan is awarded the MID and not much happens. And Lieutenant Commander Richards, David Richards, quite rightly, goes on to have command of other vessels, quite a significant and respected naval career. And to this very day, no one should criticise him for his incomplete and inaccurate uh, description of Sheehan's actions, as I say, written only uh, six days after the sinking of his ship. In 1945, Russell Caro, whom I mentioned earlier, who had uh, been described by Ray Leonard, who, by the way, went on to be the senior psychologist for the Department of Veterans Affairs in his working life, uh, Dr. Ray Leonard, but uh, Russell Caro described as a man of impeccable integrity by Leonard. In 1945, he wrote a description of the sinking of HMAS Armadale, and it basically set out the facts as we now know them. And in that period, in 1945 and 1946, there were some reviews done of awards for gallantry during the Second World War, and some were actually recognised, you, you would say, retrospectively. But no one took the initiative to actually have a closer look at what Sheehan had actually done. And so the end result of all of this is that not through any malevolence or any determination, whether by the British or indeed by anybody else, to deny Sheehan appropriate recognition for his actions, but through a whole period of missteps, missed opportunities, maladministration, sliding door moments, it was not done, but it has now. So sorry to talk so long, you need to ask me questions, Angus. Brendan, not at all. We love listening to you and that account is just magnificent. Brendan, using your medical experience, could you imagine Sheehan having been shot, some say, you know, across the chest by the strafing zeros? When he goes down with the ship, tracer shots are seen coming from beneath the waves. So he still had a few rounds in the gun and the gun was still able to recall, you know, a few rounds out. Now, I just feel the man's defiance in hanging on just the man's defiance to go down with the ship still fighting 
I'm just so moved by it. Well, I certainly am too. But also I've got to say to you openly, Angus, there is mythologizing, and as is always the case, there's a bit of the mythology becomes fact, which isn't with the passing of time. The truth of it is that the oilican physically cannot fire underwater. It cannot. The gas chamber and the mechanism for the firing is such it physically cannot fire. But of course, it's understandable that survivors in the water, all they've got above the water is their head and maybe just the nose. Their eye level, if you like, above the water line itself is just a matter of centimetres. You know, we've all had that experience. Keep in mind, and then you've got, whilst it wasn't a rough sea, keep in mind you've got the movement of the waves and so on. So it's perfectly understandable that some of the witnesses from where they were viewing this would have thought that Sheehan was still firing from under the water. The truth of it is he physically could not. Also go back to what I said earlier, there was a maximum of 60 rounds in the magazine for the oilican. And the oilican, particularly loaded with 60 rounds, it's impossible for a single man, particularly one that's wounded, to change the magazine, which is why the oilican was a three-man crew. So the maximum rounds, let's assume that not a single round had been fired from that aft oilican before the Japanese fighters and bombers came in. So that means that Sheehan had 60 rounds. We now know, and I'll get to this later on, that it was precisely six minutes from the time the first torpedo hit the ship to its sinking. One of the doubts in the 2013 Valor inquiry, for example, was did Sheehan have enough time to actually do what he's purported to have done? Because uh, Richard's uh, reported proceedings said the ship sank in three to four minutes. We now know from the first time anyone's done it, to our knowledge, by the way, from having examined the Japanese records, that it was six minutes. In that period of time, let's assume, for example, that Sheehan was at his aft oilican for two minutes, perhaps two minutes. He would not have fired with his finger fixed on the trigger. He would have run out of ammunition very quickly. What is almost certain is that he fired in bursts, which would explain why the survivors thought that it was continuous firing. And it is an immense credit to him that he actually hit two of the planes. When you think of the circumstances, that he's wounded, he's on a, a stern which is going up, a sinking ship, these planes are moving pretty quickly, the three Japanese uh, Zeros in particular, with a maximum of 60 rounds. That in itself is quite a feat. Brendan, decades passed, but Teddy's family, in particular his nephews, make it their mission to see him appropriately recognised. But for many years, their attempts were unsuccessful. This year, you were asked by the government to chair an expert panel to review Teddy's case. How did the panel come about? Why was this step taken? Okay, well, let's, let's backtrack a bit. As you can see, you ask short questions and I give very long answers. I apologise. No, we love it. So let's backtrack. So 49 people survived the sinking of the Armadale, a proportion of which, of course, are Australians and also Dutch. In the 1980s, Frank Walker the journalist, decides he's going to write a book, The Ship That Had to Die, about Armadale. And of course, he interviews survivors and he gets testimony. And that stoked, I think, a public interest in the recognition of Sheehan, which went beyond the Corvette Association and the people that you would expect would be advocates for this, including uh, Sheehan's family. And of course, you take with a grain of salt what is written in a book, which is meant to not only educate, but also entertain. And with the passage of years, people's recollections, in fact, even after an event, you know, if you think about any of us in our day-to-day -day lives, if we see an adrenaline-charged event, let's say three of us see an adrenaline-charged event, the next day we'll have three different descriptions of what happened. 
years, decades later, you have to be very careful about accepting at face value what is being said to you about events that had happened which people remember. Not because they're deliberately wanting to say something that might not be true or exaggerated or anything of the sort, but the human brain works in in different ways and people genuinely have different recollections. But nonetheless, Walker's book played a significant role in stoking interest in this. And I think also emboldened the Sheehan family in particular, understandably, to be advocates for this, enjoined by some others. This controversy and some others bubbled along for a number of years. And then in finally in 2011, so oh, sorry, I should say the Royal Australian Navy official history was written and published in 1968. That was another, in my opinion, lost opportunity to explore in detail Sheehan's actions. So finally, in 2011, the then Gillard government made a decision to having established a Defence and Honours Awards Tribunal governed by an Act, then referred 14 cases of unresolved recognition for naval and military bravery to the Defence, Honours and Awards Tribunal for consideration. 13 of those were individual cases for examination, including in some cases a possible Victoria Cross. And then the crew of HMAS Yarra and Robert Rankin was the 14th examined. So this is 2013 when they report. Alan Rose uh, AO chaired that uh, tribunal, very good man. And he was one of those whom we interviewed in our panel. In fact, I asked him, I said, you had uh, a batch lot, so to speak. So you had 13 individual cases. How did you deal with that? And he said, well, we allocated the cases to groups of two from the tribunal. A Navy Commodore and an Army Brigadier examined the Sheehan case in detail. Because it was referred by the minister to the tribunal, it was under what's called Division 4, Part 8C of the Defence Act. And in this section of the Act, the tribunal is required under this section of the Act, having been referred by the minister, to carefully consider and take into account government policy. And government policy is that there should not other than in the most exceptional circumstances, be retrospective awards for bravery or gallantry awarded. The second thing they were required to do, as Alan Rose said to me, was to uphold the integrity of the Imperial and the Australian Honours System. So that tribunal, over its two-year period of examining these cases, including Sheehan's, concludes that there was no maladministration, that they believed that the Australian Commonwealth Naval Board and the authorities had handled the Sheehan case in accordance with their rules and procedures. It also concluded that it would rely, and it said, it actually said it relied very heavily on Richard's report of proceedings, his ROP. Now, as I've explained earlier, that was a mistake because Richard's ROP was incomplete and it was in part inaccurate. And then having relied heavily on that, it's then said that witnesses' testimony actually confirmed Richard's ROP. Well, at least in one significant case, it actually contradicted uh, Richard's ROP. That tribunal did a very impressive job in collecting all of the testimony, all of the evidence surrounding Sheehan's actions, but then, was flawed in its analysis of them. And then having done what I just described, the tribunal then went on to say that it did a merits review. So testing basically Sheehan's merits against whether there should be a Victoria Cross or not. And it concluded that while he was very brave, that the Victoria Cross should not be recommended. 
But what it didn't actually do is test Sheehan's actions against the regulations in the Act for the Victoria Cross of Australia and the letters patent. So having said that it would do it, it didn't actually do it. So then Guy Barnett, who is the Minister for Veterans in the state of Tasmania, very good man, he's been very committed to this and focused on this for well over a decade, probably closer to 20 years. So he, and some would say cleverly, in 2018, wrote a letter to the Chief of Navy setting out the case for it and requesting the Chief of Navy recommend that Sheehan be awarded a Victoria Cross for Australia. The Chief of Navy writes back and says, uh, no, because that had been rejected, then that triggers an appeal to be made to the Honours and Awards Tribunal. So an appeal against the decision by the Australian Defence Force was made by Barnett to the Defence and Honours Awards Tribunal. And I know this is all very technical because Australians, and particularly those listening to the podcast, would think, well, we've already had a tribunal that's looked at us and they said no. Why is another tribunal looking at it? So this is why they looked at it in 2018 through to 2019, because there was an appeal. But because it was an appeal, it was under Division 3, Part 8C of the Defence Act. And I think it's Section uh, 110.5b from memory. But because it was an appeal, the tribunal was unconstrained by government policy. The tribunal did not have to consider what, uh, for example, the palace might think. Of course, if it considers upholding the integrity of the wards and honours system, of course it does. In fact, I would argue that by having appeals, it actually enhances the integrity of the whole thing rather than diminish it. So Mark Sullivan, the chair of that uh, tribunal, and uh, four other members unanimously decided that Sheehan should be awarded the Victoria Cross for Australia. And in order to do so, there have to be two things that are found significant maladministration in the process, the appeal did not uh, look at that per se, or new and compelling evidence. Sullivan's tribunal, reporting in 2019 to the Defence Minister and the Prime Minister, said that it had found two pieces of new and compelling evidence. That tribunal said, well, the first piece of new and compelling evidence was that Grant Sheehan, a nephew of Sheehan, that's a big family, who had spent over four decades, I might add, in the Australian Army, Grant Sheehan said to the Appeal Tribunal, well, in 1992, at the reunion for the survivors of HMAS Armadale, that ordinary seaman Edward Pellet, remember the guy had been desperately chopping the ropes on the motorboat on the port side of the doomed ship, assisted by Sheehan, that Pellet had said to him, there was absolutely no doubt that when Teddy Sheehan turned and left him on the side of the ship, as he, Pellet, was getting into the boat, that Sheehan was unwounded. So in other words, here is a man, 18 years old, who's looking into an open motorboat that he's just cut off a sinking ship, seeing his mates being shot in the water. He's not wounded, so he had every reason to believe if he got into that boat, he'd probably survive, but instead turned and left him unwounded to go to his almost certain death and the aft oilican at the back of the ship. So the tribunal considered that new and compelling evidence. The second piece of new and compelling evidence that the 2019 tribunal regarded was the testimony of no less than the Chief of Navy, Vice Admiral Michael Noonan. And the Chief of Navy had said in his testimony that absolutely that Sheehan's actions on that day, the 1st of December, 1942, 
are amongst the most conspicuous and gallant that we have seen in our Navy, end of quote. And the formal paragraph 53, in fact, the formal submission made by the Royal Australian Navy to the 2019 appeal review by the Defence and Awards Honours Tribunal, it's worth a read actually, was based on months of diligent research by the Royal Australian Navy. It reads like a citation for a Victoria Cross and in fact, obviously uncontested facts, which I have uh, described uh, earlier. And that is why ordinary everyday people would be thinking, hang on, they looked at it this in 2011 through to 2013, they said no VC. How come is if you've got a tribunal again, looks at it in 2019, comes out with a different outcome? That is why there was a different outcome. Minister for Defence Personnel, the Honourable Baron Chester, he receives the advice from the tribunal, 2019, and he accepts that advice. And then the Minister for Defence, the Honourable Linda Reynolds, and the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister in particular, consulting with very senior military figures, serving and no longer serving, reaches a view that he will not accept that advice from the tribunal and announce, to some controversy I might add, that uh, ordinary seaman Edward Sheehan would not be awarded the Victoria Cross as had been recommended by that tribunal. So, Brendan, how were we able to turn around this rejection back in 2019? I'd actually been thinking about it and uh, I thought, well, the government's got itself into a bit of a bit of a pickle here. And we were all in lockdown, you know, we weren't allowed to go out at the time. And, and so I took to painting the house. So I was at home, my wife and I live in Barrel. So I was at home and I'd been painting the house and my, my mobile phone rang in late June. And uh, and when I moved from the Australian War Memorial to Boeing, I lost all my contacts on my phone. So my phone rang, it was a mobile phone number and I let it go through to the keeper and uh, find out who it was. And then I got a text from the same number. It said, Brendan, can you give me a call? So I rang the number and I said, oh, it's Brendan Nelson speaking. Oh, who am I speaking to? He said, oh, it's Scott here. And I said, oh, Scott who? And he said, mate, it's Scott Morrison. I said, oh, I said, I'm sorry, mate. I, I said, I've lost all my numbers. I beg your pardon. Anyway, so the Prime Minister then said, uh, he said, look, I've been thinking about the Teddy Sheehan issue. He said, I spoke to a lot of people. As you can see, I announced that we wouldn't recommend the VC. He said, but I, he said, I really need someone to have a look at it, to have a look at the overall, the, the whole thing. And he said, if you're willing to, Brendan, I'd like you to chair a, an expert panel. I'd like to put a, together a group of people from different walks of life to have a look at all of the information. So, and of course I agreed to do it. By the way, I said, I'll only do it if I don't have any payment for it. I said, I regard it as a labor of love. So Peter Shergold, whom I mentioned earlier, former Secretary of Prime Minister and Cabinet, David Bennett, QC, AC, former Solicitor General, and Brad Manera, excellent historian who runs the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park in Sydney, formerly of the Australian War Memorial. I said to the panel at the first meeting, I said, look, there's a reason this keeps coming back, and it's not Guy Barnett, and it's not the Sheehan family. There's a reason this keeps coming back, and our job is to find out what it is. We looked at all of the evidence that had been available. We looked at all the submissions to the 2013 and 2019 tribunals. We interviewed a number of people. The Chief of Defence, Chief of Navy, said that his submission in 2019 was sufficient. He wouldn't be adding to that. We spoke to the Sheehan family. We spoke to Ray Leonard, as I said. Uh, we spoke to Alan Rose, who chaired the 2013 uh, tribunal. We spoke to Mark Sullivan, the president of the RSL, Greg Malik, and, and some others. There were two questions at our first meeting, in fact, we considered. Had the wreck actually been found and explored. We basically know where the wreck is. We know where it went down, so it wouldn't be that hard to find. But the response that came back from our inquiry was there's never been an archaeological survey done of the wreck. 
personally, I think that's something our country should now think about. The second question was, what did the Japanese records show? And uh, it was interesting. And I learned something here too. So Steve Bullard, a historian with whom I worked, wonderful man at the Australian War Memorial, he went on our behalf into the National Institute of Defence Studies in Tokyo and the Naval Air Group battle records had them interpreted. And the Japanese records, like the Germans, meticulous. So what we discovered from those Japanese records was that out of Kupang in West Timor, on that day, from the 753rd Naval Air Group, the Mitsubishi G4M Betty bombers, as they were called, did five sorties. And from the 202nd Naval Air Group, the Mitsubishi Zeros, on their third sortie that day, the records identify they had seven bombers, three Zeros, precisely at the time which accords with our records, they identify a minesweeper, the Corvette, Armadale, traveling at 15 knots, they identified it at five minutes past three Darwin time. The first torpedo, as I said earlier, hit the starboard side of the ship, according to Japanese records, at 15.40, and a bomb hit the port side shortly after. The ship sank six minutes precisely after the first torpedo hit. They then describe taking enemy fire from the ship as it sank. He clearly worried the planes that were attacking and shooting the men in the water and those who were abandoning his ship. I'll correct you on him shooting down a zero. We now know he didn't. One of the aircraft, one of the bombers, sustained enemy fire during the attack, and it was only when they got back to Kapang they found that a second aircraft had also been hit. No aircraft had been shot down. But, of course, the survivors in the water, with just their heads above the water, with a very short horizon, could fully be forgiven for thinking that an aircraft trailing smoke had been shot down because their horizon was very short. The other interesting piece of information which confirms Sheehan's actions and his motives is that the Japanese Zeros between them carried 3,000 rounds of 7.7 millimeter machine gun ammunition. Now that ammunition is only good for one thing and that's shooting at people. And they fired 510 rounds and they only had one contact, that was Armadale. So in other words, the Japanese records are entirely consistent with Sheehan's motives, trying to protect men being shot and killed in the water and abandoning ship, and also with his actions, that he hit two aircraft. Amazing. By his actions, there's no doubt that he saved the lives of many men because the planes knew that they risked uh, being shot down. Brendan, it gave us all a lot of joy when you came with the Prime Minister and the announcement was made. I personally was very moved by that and I thought it was lovely, it was just you and the Prime Minister. And he was acknowledging that really you had been the thing, I believe, that had changed all this around. It's interesting, when the Prime Minister called me that day, he said to me, I noticed you haven't said anything publicly about this. And I said, well, no, I don't generally comment on these things publicly. They're very complex issues. I said, I did publicly oppose John Monash's retrospective field marshal. I said, for very good reasons. But I said, my natural disposition is not to support retrospectivity, but I'll certainly bring an open mind uh, to it. That is, in fact, what the, the four of us did, an open mind. But when you look at all of the facts, you can see that an injustice in maladministration was done to this young man, that pretty much all the evidence, apart from the Japanese archives, had always been there, but no one had actually put it all together. And the other thing is that, you know, it's, it's like when I made the decision at the Australian War Memorial to put peacekeepers that are killed on the roll of honour, there'd been a lot of opposition to that. But once it was done, 
even the people that were opposed to it could realise that it was the right thing. And similarly with this, I'm not suggesting there, are, there aren't those that are unhappy about this, but the Royal Australian Navy and this young man in particular earned this Victoria Cross. And the fact that Her Majesty the Queen would agree to it and do so willingly is extremely reassuring. And it's the Victoria Cross for Australia, of course, it's not the Imperial Victoria Cross. And of course, Brendan, the Navy gave Teddy the ultimate compliment by naming one of their Collins-class submarines a first-timer rating had been named rather than always an officer. Correct. And, you know, and I made the point, I won't be too specific, but some of the very senior military people, of course, who were not supportive of Sheehan being recognised with the VC, I made the point to some of them that the Australian Defence Force itself, the Royal Australian Navy itself, so recognised something so exceptional about Teddy Sheehan, they put his name on a Collins-class submarine. So it, it is a great honour. Shortly after that press conference, the Governor-General, David Hurley, wrote to Buckingham Palace and Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth then gave royal assent on the award. So Teddy Sheehan, the boy from Tassie who followed five of his brothers into service, became the Royal Australian Navy's first Victoria Cross recipient. Brendan, let's use this opportunity of speaking today to catch up. Here we are on September 11, 19 years since the Twin Tower attacks. We're in Sydney, nine months now into this wretched COVID thing. When you were last on our podcast, you were actually speaking with Alex on Remembrance Day in 2017 down in Canberra in your office in the War Memorial. Can you tell us about the massive renovation work that you've started and undertaken there? In my very first week at the Australian War Memorial, in fact, on my second day, ringing in my ears was a question asked of me in October 2012, just two months before my arrival at the War Memorial, by a young Australian soldier who'd asked me in Afghanistan, why is it when I go to the Australian War Memorial and take my son, I can show him what his great-grandfather and his grandfather did, but I can't show him what I'm doing? So when I asked the then senior leadership of the memorial, well, when are we doing Afghanistan? After a long silence, one of the then assistant directors said to me, oh, director, that'll be years, at least a decade. We've got no space. We've got no money. We have to wait till the war's over and everybody's come home. I said, you can't be serious. I said, we have to tell this story and tell it now. We've got 40,000 young Australians coming back to a country that's got no idea. They can't even explain it to their families, let alone the rest of Australia. So there was a major battle internally and I managed to create a space and we opened an Afghanistan exhibition, Afghanistan, the Australian story, eight months later. Very powerful, provocative uh, exhibition, but in a limited space. At the opening of that, on the 13th of August 2013, I said very publicly in front of the Prime Minister, the opposition leader, Chief of Defence, not before too long this nation is going to have to make a significant generational investment in the Australian War Memorial to create the spaces necessary to tell the stories of the 100,000 young veterans this country's created in the last 20 years. And so that's where it started. In 2015, we started preliminary work. The end result is that the Australian government, supported by the opposition, has committed over 10 years $500 million, which includes $130 million in escalation and contingency funding, to significantly expand the spaces at the memorial with world-class architecture. It's not for more First World War guns or World War II ships uh, or anything like that. It is to have a major expansion in Australia's peacekeeping story, Afghanistan, Iraq, East Timor, the Solomon Islands, the story of what our patrol boats are doing, which is currently there's nothing about any of that, 
and for the very first time, a space that will actually tell the story of what Australia does to stop war, the enormous diplomatic effort and story that's not told, and a space for veterans and quiet reflection for all of the emotions that are released there. Brendan, being mindful of time, because I know that you're working with Boeing and you have another meeting literally in minutes, but I'd like to go back to what Roy Cleland said, and I'm referencing Frank Walker's wonderful book. And Roy said, every year on the day the Armadale was sunk, I take the day off. I go to Young and Jackson's, which is that iconic pub in Melbourne, and I buy two glasses of beer. I drink my own and I leave the other one. Sometimes when I'm leaving, the barmaid will ask me about the other glass. And I tell her, my mates will be along shortly to take care of it. That tells us so much about these guys. It does. And unless you have, as much as we try with our imaginative capacity to see the world through the eyes of these men and women, you can never understand. But it speaks to a bond forged in war and in death and in courage that they would so remember them in this way, in that very simple but very powerful and evocative way. Dr. Brendan Nelson, it's been an absolute pleasure as always being with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you in particular for your service to the War Memorial, to the country. I'm Angus Horden, and it's been our pleasure to speak with Dr. Brendan Nelson today in his office in Boeing, Sydney, Australia, here on that fateful day on history, September 11. Thank you. For more between Thistle Productions and Dr. Brendan Nelson, check out theschoolandcountry.com or go to lifeonthelinepodcast.com forward slash documentary. Dr. Nelson's original video interview with Angus for our documentary was filmed by Thomas Kay. And don't miss my conversation with Brendan in Season 1. For more stories of the Victoria Cross, go back to Season 1 and listen to my interview with 2nd Commando Regiment veteran and close friend of the late Cameron Baird, VCMG. Number 10, Eddie Robertson. You have to detach yourself, I guess, from the reality that, you know, there's hot pieces of lead being fired at you and you're in the fight for your life. In season two, listen to my conversation with Cameron's father in the bonus episode, The Commando's Father with Doug Baird. So the doorbell rang that particular night. Kay answered the door and there was three soldiers there uh, with their hats in their hand. And she knew, just like I did, that uh, he'd been killed. Also in season two, Number 36, Mark Donaldson, VC. People will die. It might be you. It might be your mate. It might be the brand new guy. It's going to happen at some stage because there's lots of bullets that fly around or there's, there's dangerous work that we do. In season three, number 43, Dan Kieran, VC. I knew I had to do something. If I didn't, they were going to die. And check out the bonus episode later in season three, The Blind Man's Victoria Cross with Tim Rayson for a few British VC stories. He was blinded in that charge, both eyes shattered, stone splinters off a rock, but he carried on charging. Earlier this season, listen to the trailer for Dan Kieran's upcoming autobiography, Courage Under Fire. On 24 August 2010, in battle in Afghanistan, Corporal Daniel Kieran risked his life in a hail of gunfire to save his fellow soldiers. And we will have Dan Kieran back on the podcast later this season. Follow us at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and at LOTL Pod on Twitter. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. 
Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. And Brendan, perhaps I could close using John 15, verse 13. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And that is precisely what Teddy Sheehan did. He gave up his life, his future, his dreams for those men with whom he served. Thank you.